This is Midnight Alchemy with your host Jason Allen on the Left Coast Media Network. And now here's Jason. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever and whenever you are. This is Midnight Alchemy, and I am your train conductor for the evening, Jason Allen. Hello, everybody. It's good to be back with you all again. We have a fantastic show coming up. We have The Squatch Father, part two, starring Alfred Santariga, man. And we are going to go deep on tons of stuff. So please buckle in. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Okay, first, let's tackle the news, shall we? Anyway, this is from ufoholic.com. Physicists decode strange crop circle with a binary code and alien face. Crop circles are a worldwide phenomenon that has captured the imagination of millions of people. Recently, a physicist from Finland's University of Helsinki provided a thought-provoking analysis on one of these strange patterns, an accompanying design that has people talking. Crop circles are a surprising phenomenon, and they seem to pop up in the most unexpected ways and most unexpected places. In 2002, in a field near Crabwood, Winchester, Hampshire, England, a famous crop circle appeared overnight. The crop circle has been documented, photographed, and researched by scholars all over the world. The circles are intricately designed and sewn into crop fields. Upon further research, we are given clues as to how they have been formed and perhaps whether or not a higher intelligence has been involved. Richard Taylor, a physicist from the University of Oregon, examined them closely and found that the nodes of these stocks are blasted out on one side as opposed to simply being flattened. This effect has been replicated by microwave heating, which causes water inside the crop to vaporize and become dislodged. When this happens, the crops flop over completely to one side. Crop circle artists are said to be using GPS devices, laser, and microwaves to create these incredible patterns in the cornfields that are the delight of UFO enthusiasts and the bane of local farmers. Now researchers have uncovered the chilling message accompanying these world-famous crop circles and what it could mean for the future of this phenomenon. Crop circles carry chilling message in a binary code, according to Paul Vigay, a British computer consultant who developed and supported RISC OS software for PCs. The crop circle has a purpose behind its bizarre and intricate coding. Vigay says the message was encoded in ASCI binary code, an 8-bit code used in computer programming. Meanwhile, the paper has been published on the circles titled Crop Circles and the Life at Parallel Space-Time Sheets. Here's what it had to say about the circles. Crabwood message consists of two parts, an alien picture and picture representing spirals like a bit sequence starting from the center of a picture and proceeding counterclockwise. It has been proposed that the message is coding using 9-bit code that 8-bit portions obey ASCII code. If this is in fact true, the message reads as follows. Beware the bearers of false gifts and their broken promises. Much pain is still coming in time. E-E-L-U-V-E. We don't know what that means. There is good out there. We oppose deception. Conduit closing. Pitunkin, 
who also contributed to this, concludes that whoever made the circle is extremely artistically, technologically, and mathematically advanced to a point beyond belief. Okay, UFO-holic has a few final thoughts on the crop circles. The question is, should we be asking ourselves now is, why are the findings like these from world-class researchers constantly dismissed without even so much as a second thought? Why does the mainstream media ignore them? And will things ever change? That is, of course, a rhetorical question. But in the meantime, let's do our best to share this information and anyone willing to learn. These researchers are doing a brilliant work and simply cannot be ignored any longer. So there we have it, folks. A good crop circle story coming in from UFOaholic.com. If you want to check out the story, please get up on there and check it out. Okay, folks, it is interview time. Let's commence. Oh, man, I am excited. We have paranormal royalty in the house. <clears throat> Alfred Santariga is here. I got the New York Yankees cap on because, hey, you got to have the Yankees pride. Tonight, we are going to talk about Bigfoot, and we're going to talk about Dogman, two things that, you know, I've been really getting into lately, just so, because it's so damn interesting, right? And so we are going to, we, we're we not only digging deep, folks, we are deep, 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 deep down there. So you may want to get your shovels out and get ready to go to China, because we are going to dig deep. Alfred, how are you doing, man? Hey, Jason, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me, man. Oh, yeah. Listen, I, if I can forget, I will forget everything. I've been known to do that. If I had my wife in the room, she would be nodding her head. And uh, <laughs> so uh, can you uh, talk about all the different societies and stuff that you're a part of, just so if people want to get up their nose around on the interwebs, they can. Yeah, okay. I'm the founder of the uh, Bronxville Paranormal Society, a.k.a. BPS. Um also the founder and director of the New York State Sasquatch Organization, the New York State UFO Project, and the New York State Dogman Project. I'm also um, the director of the North American Dogman Project, New York State Chapter, and I'm also a member of uh, New York State MUFON Chapter. Oh, that is awesome. You know, uh, I'm already thinking, right? You're, you're going through it, and I'm thinking, oh, man, part three is going to be great, you know? <laughs> oh, man. Okay, we got to get going on Bigfoot here because I've been so interested in it. Uh, tell me, Alfred, uh, let's start. Let's begin at the begin. Uh, when did you first start getting, you know, interested in Bigfoot and cryptids? Well, my brother was a parapsychologist, and he had a lot of books in the house on all aspects of the paranormal, you know, and if he didn't have something on the abominable snowman, um, on Fridays at school, they would send us to the library to get a book to read over the weekend, and I was always taking something out on, uh, you know, the, the Yeti or Nessie or something, something to that effect. It was always, so I was always taking something out on those things. I love that. Um, I remember when I was about 12 years old, hanging out at the movies with my cousins. I think we were watching James Bond or something to that effect. And after the movie, um, the Patterson Giblin tra uh, trailer came on. And I remember, and I always had this intuition or gut feeling or uh, whatever you want to call it, a vibe. I don't know. Um, when I seen that trailer, I remember turning to like my cousin Dino and saying, this is real, you know, and 
taken like the most abuse you could possibly take from your cousins between all of my cousins shredding me for thinking that that Bigfoot was real. You know, they, they just, you know, that's how my family shows love by breaking your balls. So the more they break your balls, the more they love you, you know? And my brother took a lot of abuse from my cousins, my older cousins and my uncles for being a parapsychologist. I mean, he was a money guy anyway. He had masters in, you know, in, in, uh, in that, in that field, but he, uh, he, he used to work with, um, Han Holzer's partner, uh, right-hand man. And that's how he got into going to California to get his degree in, uh, parapsychology. But I, I was always into every aspect of the paranormal. When I created BPS, um, we investigated all aspects. And we always included ghosts, cryptids, and UFOs in our investigations. We, ne- we, always, we always, for some reason, you know, like-minded people, we were all, everybody had their specialty on the team. But we all, I just think we all believed that everything was truly connected. You know what I mean? Um, everybody had their own theory on how it was connected, but everybody had that, that belief that it was all connected. And, you know, as time goes on, you figure this stuff out, you know, little tidbits. It's like, it's like a, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. It starts to come together after time. And, um, the longer you're in the field, the more sensitive you get to energies, you know, different energies affect me different ways where before it was just a gut feeling now I hear like a little voice in my head. will tell me something like, don't go left, go right. Yeah. Or I'll get a metallic taste in my mouth or my teeth will go numb or pressure in my forehead or my fingers will tingle. I mean, just you name it. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a, uh, an author and I was, he says, oh, you have all the clairs, you know, you're everything you're telling me is, are all the clairs you're, you know. And I was like, well, I don't know about the clairs. This is just, who I am, you know, like I'll feel the wall and see what kind of image comes to my mind's eye. I don't know what that's called. That's just me doing it, you know, instinctively. Something is telling me to feel the wall and get an image in my mind's eye, you know? So now I, I, you know, he tells me I have all the clears. Okay, I have all the clears, that's fine. But I am not, I don't go out and say that I'm a psychic by any stretch of imagination because I can't do this at will it comes to me, you know, when it comes to me and it tells me that's when I do it. I just can't, I'm like, I, I can't remote view or I can't, you know, just tell you what you're thinking stuff like that. Now, when I'm in an investigation, I'll get pulled one way. I'll hear a voice in my head, you know, I'll smell something. I'll taste something, you know, these are all tidbits of all the clairs, but these are these things just happen to me naturally. I don't try to bring it on. So I never claim to be psychic by any stretch of the imagination. But like I said, the longer you do this, mm-hmm. the more you experience. Um I had a I had a what did I call it? And and some uh oh god, I can't I can't think of the word. Uh, uh well well never mind. We'll go so we'll go a different way. Um <laughs> anyway. My very first Bigfoot experience, um, 1974, down in South Florida, my cousin Anthony. Anthony's 15, I'm 12. He's like a brother to me. We, you know, Like I said, all my cousins lived in the same neighborhood. And at times you would hang out with one 
for a year and then you'd be hanging out with another one for a year, you know, and um, Anthony was like a brother to me. We were sent down to Florida every summer to my sister's house. Um, it was like our summer camp, you know what I mean? Yeah. And my brother-in-law was an ex-Marine. He had an Italian restaurant in town and he had a list of chores he would have us do every day, you know, he wanted everything done by 12 because after like one o'clock, it just gets too hot in Florida in the summer to be out there, you know? And, uh, but, um, you know, we, so we were down there and we went down there. So, so we knew he, she lived in a, in this giant square. It was called sunshine acres. It was in, in, out on the outskirts of a little town called Davie, Florida. And it was right on the outskirts of the Everglades and it was canals all around it. And there was alligators in those canals. And it was a one-lane bridge to get over to the property and one lane to get back. And that was it. You couldn't get two cars on that bridge at the same time, you know? And it was a horse rancher in the south end and a cattle rancher in the east end. And uh, so we knew all the kids in the neighborhood. We had dirt bikes. We, you know, we, we did our work. We would do whatever my brother-in-law had plans for us to do. We were popcorning ceilings. We were painting. <laughs> we were doing all kinds of stuff, you know? And, uh, but um, we had our dirt bikes that we rode in the swamp. And a friend of ours, father owned the horse ranch. And we took horses out on tours. We took tours out in the swamp. The horses knew where they were going. We were just there to make sure nobody fell into the, into the Everglades in the swamp, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, we shoveled crap to make a few dollars for beer. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure, sure. So we'd go, we'd go in the woods at night and have bonfires. Well, summer is going on. And this particular summer, there was a drought in South Florida. There was, a, the Everglades was uh, on fire. Mm. And a lot of the creatures that were in the Everglades were coming, coming north out of the Everglades towards inland. Yeah. And so us being on the on the outskirts of the Everglades, we would hear and we would see on the news. We would hear like um, reports of a skunk ape, a sheriff seen the skunk ape. The town police were called to this lady's house, and they thought it was a peeping tom. When they got there, it was a skunk ape looking in her window, and oh, you know, so it was all. And we'd hear it on the TV, we'd hear it on the radio, we'd read it in the newspaper. And, you know, we just, we didn't know what to think of it. Because, you know, like, I was like, what the hell is a skunk ape? You know what I mean? <laughs> I thought Bigfoot, at 12 years old, I thought Bigfoot only lived in the Pacific Northwest. That's yeah. where I thought he was. And, you know, down in South Florida, get the hell out of here, you know? And uh, one night, we're we're up, and we're watching, like, Don Kirshner's rock concert, like, 1 o'clock in the morning. Midnight and, special, man. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the midnight special. And, uh, and, uh, Something goes by the house. Now, my sister had like a three acres of land, and the front of the house was opened with a circular driveway with a fountain. But the sides, the sides of the house in the back was fenced in with a six-foot fence. She had two large German shepherds, yeah. and um, something walked by the house, and the dogs went absolutely insane. And we, I grabbed the dogs and put them in the garage so they wake, they wouldn't wake up the whole house. But it stunk to high heaven. Whatever went by the house stunk to high heaven. Yeah. So the next morning, we're sitting at breakfast with my sister and my brother. And we're telling them, man, something went by the house. I sent around 1 o'clock in the morning, one thirty. That stunk like, now the way I described it, was like a thousand skunks. You know what I mean? It's how bad it was. Yeah. I said, the dogs went ballistic. I had to put them in the garage. And my brother-in-law turned to me and said, oh, it must have been the skunk gate. 
And I just looked at him like, what? What's skunk ape? I mean, you know, and he's like, yeah, you know, skunk ape. And then my sister's saying, yeah, it's it's like, it's the Bigfoot version of Florida. And I'm like, really? And she's like, yeah. And I, I thought they were pulling my, my, my leg, you know what I mean? Even though we were hearing about it on all the, the media outlets, I just thought she was pulling my legs, you know what I mean? Like, I couldn't, you know, I just couldn't get my head around the name Skunk Ape, you know? Sure. So then a few nights go by and we're again, we're up, you know, once Friday night, I think it was, we're watching wrestling at midnight, right? And we're jumping around the couch and wrestling's over and we go to sleep. We're laying, she had a sunroom that faced the front of the house and she had a queen size pullout bed. And in front of the bed, she had a giant picture window. It must have been eight feet long and four feet high. Yeah. And it over, you know, you looked out the window, you seen the garden and the fountain. But she had a couch down there. So we pull it out and we're laying in bed. And the house had sensor lights all around it. Me and my cousin Anthony are laying in bed and the sensor lights go off. And I mean, they go on. And we see this giant shadow go across the front of the wall in front of us. Ooh, and we're like, what the hell is that? I'm getting goosebumps talking about it. And then all of a sudden, the dogs go off. They go crazy. I jump up. I drag the dogs in the garage. Because if my brother-in-law wakes up, everybody's getting their ass kicked. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so not only the dogs get to beat, but we're getting beaten too. So I drag the dogs into the garage. And... Um, I do a belly crawl to the window. She had this curtain. She had like a, a, a drape or a curtain you pulled down. And I forgot what it's called. A shade. She had a shade. So I'm peeking out the shade, the corner of the shade. Meanwhile, my cousin Anthony is frozen in the bed. Just He's not moving. And I look out the window. And there in the middle of the driveway is this thing to me that looks like King Kong. Okay. It's humongous. It's four, five feet wide. I mean, I was, as much as I looked at its face, I was, you know, my cousin was a weightlifter. My cousin had a big back for, you know, 15 year old kid. I was more martial arts kind of guy, you know? Mm -hmm. And his thing was wide. And it looked like as wide as it was, it was the same thing, thickness too, because this thing was thick. Dang. And, and um, so I'm looking at this thing and it sees its reflection in the glass and it does this incredible Hulk flex and scream. And now this scream goes through you, goes through the glass. It goes through you. It's like you're in front of a, a amplifier at a Metallica concert. You know what I mean? Get blown away. And it had canines. Mm. eyes were red it had a conical head it had a red tint to it and even though it was dark color when the sensor lights hit it it had like a red tint to it now i thought it was screaming at me hindsight being 2020 it must have seen this reflection in the window yeah. and thought it was another creature you know and then it walked around to the side of the house we had an empty lot this development had a lot of empty lots there was only a handful of houses on it and these two giant farms, the horse ranch at one end and the cattle farmer at the other. And 
It starts to walk around the side. So I grab my cousin Anthony, I drag him out of the bed. I said, come on, come on, come on. We gotta check this thing out, right? Yeah, and yeah. we run into the we run into the bathroom on that side of the house that's in between the kids' rooms. We leave the lights off. It's got a black screen, tinted glass, and we're looking at this thinking there's no way you can see us if the lights are off. And as this thing is walking by the fence, and this is how I guess its height, the fence was six feet tall. And this thing was at least three feet taller than the fence. Okay. Yeah. And the whole time it's walking along the fence line, it's looking at us like it could see us. Yeah. Yeah. And we kept ducking down below the window and then we look back up and it would still be looking. At one point it stops. It grabs a wild watermelon. It takes a bite out of it. There's nothing left but two nubs. It drops the nubs <laughs> and it starts walking towards the back of the house. So I grab Anthony and said, come on, let's go out in the patio. Because my sister had a beautiful screened-in patio, you know? Yeah. Again, we run out to the patio. We leave the lights off. It's a black screen, thinking no one's going to be able to see us. As it passes the back of the house, the sensor lights go off. So we can see it clear as day. And it's just, and the whole time it's walking, it's looking at us. It's looking at us as it's walking. And we're looking at it. And behind our house, there was our, our neighbor, had a man-made lake. Now we would swim in that lake all the time because it was much cooler than the pool. The pool was like piss swimming in pits, you know, yeah. but the man-made lake was always cooler. It squatted down, put one hand down and with the other hand, it cupped the water and it drank the water out of the man-made lake. And then it walked off into the swamp where we would go and do our bonfires and ride our dirt bikes and take the horse, the trails out and everything. And then it just went off. It just started screaming and screaming and screaming. And um, so the next morning, my sister and my brother-in-law, they don't wake up. They don't hear anything. We tell them what happened. They think we're bullshit. And I go, yeah, we're bullshitting. Come with us. We drag them to the side of the house where it walked along the fence line. And there were 18-inch tracks walking mm. along the fence line in the sand. So my brother-in-law says, I'm coming back at lunchtime with some uh, uh, mortar and stuff. I'm going to, I'm going to cast these. I'm going to put them up on my bar. He had a beautiful bar at the house, you know? Yeah. So I'm going to put one up in the restaurant and one up in the, in the bar in the house, you know, as a, as a conversation piece. Mm -hmm. So he says, oh, so we say, yeah, okay. And he goes, make sure nobody wrecks them. I said, okay. So we're working, we're working. And he goes to work at the restaurant in the morning to do start preparing for the, for the lunch special and everything. And he got busy. He never came home. Three o'clock, the horse, the horse, uh, horse guy went out with a with a with a, tr a group of people, and they always rode right by our fence line because there was no house there, and they destroyed the tracks. You know, with the horses destroyed the tracks, so, so we were never able to cast them. So when he came home, he was like, any he he was a little upset that he couldn't get home that day, and uh, somebody had called out, so he had to stick around the restaurant and. Uh, See, we never cast any tracks, but um, so you know, now we're really freaking out. We're telling, we're like, we can't believe. So I, I'm talking to all my friends in the neighborhood, and I'm like, is this, you know, like I didn't believe it was, you know, it was real, you know? And they were like, yeah, every time when it's hot like this, this thing comes out of the swamp. When it's hot like every, you know, every now and then, we've been going down to Florida for like five years straight, and we never encountered this, you know. Mm. But again. That year was super hot. The, the, uh, the Everglades were on fire. So stuff was being drawn in inland. 
Okay, so a few nights go by, and it's it's pretty much pretty quiet for for a week or so. One night, my brother-in-law comes home from the restaurant about around twelve, and he used to bring home all the burnt pizzas that the guys burnt, and that would be like me and my cousin Anthony's midnight snacks. Right? We did a whole <laughs> pie. We did a whole pie by ourselves. You know what I mean? Yeah. And. Uh, we were sitting in the back, we're sitting in the patio, and he's like, any action tonight? And we're like, nah, pretty quiet night, yada, yada, yada. And we're all sitting there, me, my cousin Anthony, my brother-in-law, my sister, having some pizza. Because, you know, being from New York, we like our pizza well done anyway, you know what I mean? Yeah. So um, that was, it wasn't burnt for me, but it was burnt for the people down in Florida. But anyway, all of a sudden, we hear like a 30-30 going off. Bang, 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 right? So yeah. we run to the front of the house, and you can see the muzzle flashes coming from the horse ranch's farm, you know? And so we know who, you know, our friend's father owns that ranch. So my brother says, jump on your dirt bikes, go down there and see, because even though we can see the muzzle flashes, it's like three blocks away, you know what I mean? Because right. this development is like a giant square, which is like two miles two miles square, you know what I mean? So yeah. it's a big development. And uh, so we jump on our dirt bikes and we just fly across all the empty lots and everything. We race down there. We see our friend. Like At this point, all the other neighbors are, are out, you know, because they hear the gunshots. They're all coming out. And I'm like, what's going on? I'm talking to my friend. And he said, oh, the skunk ape tried to get my father's horse. Now, this guy had just brought a horse in from Wyoming, Montana. I'm not really sure. It was a Mustang or what it was, but it was wild, okay? And he couldn't put it in the stalls with the other horses because it would kick. And it made all the other horses nervous. So he'd leave it in the corral. And he had a Native American Seminole Indian coming every day to work him, to try to break him, you know? Mm -hmm. And so he left his horse in the corral. And this nine-foot, thousand-pound creature somehow snuck up on his horse and grabbed him by its hind quarters. Now, the only thing I can think of, and this is, this is not my theory, but this is the sheriff's theory and the, and the homeowner's theory, the rancher's theory. The creature grabbed the horse from behind. And the horse must have kicked out, like kicked the kicked the creature, and the creature let go. And then the horse jumped out of the corral and ran into the pasture. Yeah. And once it got into the pasture, the creature wasn't going to catch it. By the time all that the the rancher heard all that commotion, he came out shooting. You know, he was shooting. He wasn't wasting. He wasn't playing any games. You know, back then in South Florida, uh, Davy was a cowboy town. Okay. Every every pickup truck had three gun, three rifles in the window, you know. Yeah. Um, the biggest thing that happened there was the rodeo on the fourth of July. It was a cowboy town, and he's you know, you didn't play. They, they just didn't play back then, you know. Right. Uh and uh so the next day, so the sheriff is there and he's talking to he's talking to the homeowner and he's saying, Okay, you know, we're we're gonna we're gonna pick up our patrols because you guys are getting a lot of sightings out here and you guys are on the outskirts and we're going to, we're going to pick up the patrols around here. You know, maybe me and a deputy will do a, a, a simultaneous patrol a couple of times during the night, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and so the next morning I ride back over there with my cousin, we both ride over to talk to the kid and uh, the Seminole Indian is there and he rides out to the pasture to get the horse and he brings the horse back to the corral. And when the horse gets back to the corral, 
the horse has handprints on its hindquarters, not claw marks. Yeah. And like if I was to grab you by your wrist and squeeze as hard as I could, it left handprints on this horse's hindquarters. Yeah, it was crazy. I never seen anything like that. The sheriff was like besides himself, you know. Yeah. So he's like, okay, you know what? You know when he's seeing that, he says, oh, we definitely got to spend more time out here, you know. And uh, so there. A um, couple of nights go by, nothing's happening. You know, you know, every now and then you'd hear screaming or going off in the swamp, but you know, no one's going in the swamp at twelve o'clock at night when this creature is going off. You know, and um, my brother-in-law had friends flying down from from New York, and my the him and my sister were taking them out to Miami for dinner and dancing and he said you know you guys got to watch the kids babysit the kids <laughs> showed us where the showed us where the guns were in the house but you know, keep the dogs in the house with you don't let them in don't leave them in the yard you know mm-hmm. and we're like yeah don't worry we got this you know no problem you know we didn't really expect anything anyway you know mm-hmm. and um they went out they did their thing they rolled in around two o'clock in the morning and of course, as soon as they pulled into the driveway, the dogs went crazy. And we all run out to the to the car to meet them. My brother had just bought a brand new like Lincoln Continental Mark IV or something like that with the sunroof. I mean, it was a gorgeous car. And uh, so my sister comes out of the car. He gets out of the car and he's talking any action like no, no action. And then we hear the most blood curdling cry let's call it a cry it was it was it just froze you to it just scared the living daylights out of you because you had never heard anything like this before and we didn't know what the hell it was it was just horrible 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 scared my sister so much she grabbed both dogs and ran into the house we're looking at each other, me, my brother, and my, and my cousin, and we're just looking at it like, what the hell was that? You know, it wasn't the, it wasn't the creature. It was something else. And then from the cattle ranchers, we see a double barrel shotgun go off. Both barrels. Boom! Yeah. So my brother wants to jump in the car. Let's go see what, what's going on, right? So my cousin Anthony takes shotgun. I jump in the back seat. I tell my brother to open up the sunroof. I'm hanging out the sunroof, right? Yeah. We drive to the corner. As soon as we get to the corner, the deputy passes us. Now we're stuck behind the deputy. And he's going like two miles an hour. And you could see at the far end of the development, because the one thing about Florida, it's flat, right? Yeah. So at the far end of the development, you can see like the sheriff's car doing the patrol but he's like a mile away right so we're stuck behind the deputy and the deputy's got his spotlight looking to the left because to the left is where the swamp is there's all homes around us to the right and empty lots and as everybody's looking left the creature runs out in the darkness and the deputy hits it with the police car oh man creature goes down takes down a school sign or something right that's supposed to be unbendable up to two mile, hundred mile an hour winds. These things don't bend. Well, he pancaked this sign and it bent, right? Now we turn everybody turns around because he we hit a police car, hit it. We're my brother jams on the brakes. He's maybe six feet, four to six feet behind a police car. Preacher gets up, limps over to the police car, 
Right, Braun Law hits it with the high beams. I'm outside the, the moon roof looking at this thing. I'm like, you know, oh my God, what the hell? You know, this is too close. You know what I mean? I'm way too close. Yeah. And the creature looks down at the, the deputy and the police. And you can see the deputy because of the lights, you can see his silhouette. And the creature does a hammer punch, boom, right on the front of the car. And he screams at the deputy. I mean, screams at the deputy. And the back of the car comes off the ground. Yeah. And the deputy is just holding on to the steering wheel. And it limps off into the swamp. The sheriff turns the corner, sees the police car in the middle of the road totaled, puts his lights on, comes down, starts taking the deputy's, you know, statement, what's going on. He tells the deputy, the deputy tells him, the sheriff says, well, back then they carried the shotgun in between the two, the, the driver and the passenger. And the sheriff said, well, why didn't you take the shotgun and shoot the goddamn thing, you know? And he was like, uh, shotgun wasn't big enough, you know? Shotgun wasn't big enough. I don't know what he had in the shotgun, probably double odd buck or something like that. Yeah. But he just said to the sheriff, shotgun wasn't big enough, you know? Yeah. And we're telling that he's, the sheriff has taken our statements because we right there, we've seen it, you know? Everybody's given the same statement. When the cattle rancher... I was racing up to the sheriff and says, you got to come back to my farm and see what this damn creature did to my prize bull. Oh. Now, this guy had a Brahma bull, a yeah. white Brahma bull with a hump in its neck. And this bull was the size of a minivan. Okay. Yeah. If it was 2,500 pounds, it weighed an ounce. Okay. Now, this particular rancher did not like me and my cousin too much because every time we would come around the corner on our dirt bikes we would always be doing like 100 miles an hour <laughs> and not to go down on the gravel we'd have to go up on his lawn around his mailbox and we would tear up his lawn all the time and my brother-in-law was constantly receding this guy's lawn right but there was a time where i used to jog that two miles every day right because I was into martial arts, I wanted to stay in shape. And the fence line was only about four feet high, you know, where the cows and the Brahma bull and everything is. And one day I'm running, I'm jogging. There's a lady down the street who's got a St. Bernard, like Cujo. Every time I run past this dog's house, this dog wants to eat me, right? <laughs> Luckily, he's behind this metal fence. Well, one day I'm passing the fence the lady who owns the house is coming around the corner. She hits the automatic gate opener because she just wants to pull into her driveway. She hits the gate opener. The gate opens. The dog comes running out. Boom. Now the dog is chasing me. He's running me down like a guided missile. There's no trees in Florida to climb like here in New York, right? Yeah. So I'm like, this dog is gaining on me. And I was a pretty fast kid, you know? And this dog is gaining on me. And the only thing, only way for me, way for me to get away from is to dive over that fence into that pasture with that Brahma bull. So I dive over the fence. The dog jumps up onto the fence. The Brahma bull sees me sitting there in the, in the pasture, <laughs> sees the dog going nuts, and he starts to trot over, you okay. know? Like, what's going on? That is bull. If he wants to go through this fence, this fence is not holding him back, you know? Yeah. And so I'm thinking, while the bull is focused on the dog, I'm going to use the cows the, I'm gonna, as sh shields 
and I'm going to work my way out the front gate, you know? Yeah. Lady's calling the dog back. The dog comes back. By the time the dog comes back, I'm out the, I'm just about getting to the front gate. The bull's looking for me. I'm already out the front gate, you know, but I use the cows as protection because the cows, I figured he wouldn't charge the cows to get to me. Right. And so I seen this bull up close and personal. This thing was a beast, a beast, I tell you. So when the rancher says, you got to see what this damn creature did to my bull, in my head, I'm saying, no way. There's yeah. no way this thing is taking that bull down. Right. So the sheriff says, okay, I'll follow you back to your ranch. So we go around the deputy and we follow the sheriff back to the, the ranches, the, the cattle ranch's farm. We get there and he's flashing his uh, light, his spotlight on the side of the car through the pasture. And there in the middle of the pasture is this Brahma bull bleeding out with no head. Creature ripped the head off the Brahma bull. Then he pre-feeds panning down a little bit more, a hundred yards away in a different direction. The head is laying a hundred yards away. The creature just threw the head away, you know? And I'm thinking the skunk ape was in there going after a calf or something, you know? And because the cows had babies, you know, and the bull seen the creature and did what the bull did because those Brahma bulls are ornery to begin with. You know what I mean? Yes. And I knew that because when the, when the rodeo would come to town, I loved to see them Bronx, you know, and I would talk to the cowboys and they would say, yeah, those damn Brahma bulls, they're, they're ornery, you know, <laughs> like what's the difference between that and the other bull, you know, they know those ones right there. You got to watch your back with those bulls, you know, I was like, okay. So I ripped the head off of this bull. At this point, the sheriff says, I need help. And he calls in the stadies and he calls in the county police. And they come with horses and dogs and helicopters and they search the swamp high and low all night long. Mm. They never found a thing. And now we thought that since we were hearing about it all summer long, that there was going to be newspaper reporters there and TV people there. And they were going to interview us because we were eyewitnesses. We were going to be TV stars, you know, our, our 10 minutes of fame, right? You know, we thought you know, nobody came to house to interview us. We would drive to the wind Dixie. Because at 15, my cousin had a license down there. So he would drive. We drove to the wind Dixie. We bought all the papers that they had. No mention of anything in the papers. Nothing like it never happened. And I was like, what the hell? How could this be possible? Now, I had posted this experience in the Skunk Ape Museum in South Florida. And a woman for the BFRO, her name was Marie, Marie Monolith or something like that. She reached out to me. She said, I want to do this story and I want to put it in the BFRO website. Would you mind? I said, absolutely not. And she goes on to tell me, that she was the same age as me and she lived in the next town over and her father had a business in Davie and he would hear all, she, he would come home and tell him all kinds of story, what happened. And her uncle was a cop in the uh, Cooper city, which was the next town uh, to the, to the South of us. She lived in the next town to the East of us. Okay. And he would go over and he would tell them stories about, 
how they would get reports of a black man peeping in the window and the old lady would be nervous and the cops would go there and they'd come around both ends. As soon as they hit it with the flashlight, it would be a skunk ape. It would see the cops that would run off and dive into the swamp and swim away. But they had two sets. She said they had two sets of books, the official report and the yeah. unofficial report. And her uncle told her that he was going to give her his unofficial book so she could put out a book about all these experiences, all these uh, skunk ape stuff that happened in South Florida around that time. Now, what she did for me was she went in and she got all the newspaper articles from that summer, the summer before and the summer after, and she put them all into my story on the BFRO. Yeah. And then she, she like, yeah, like I, I love this woman. She went above and beyond the call of duty. She actually got an aerial shot of Sunshine Acres, the big square. And she marked, that's all homes now, you know, and the swamp is all drained and it's homes there. But she marked everything like the cattle rancher was here and the horse rancher was here and the swamp was back here where we rode the horses and all of this stuff. And she put a report out there. And if anybody wants to go see it, I don't know what the number of it off my head, but if you go to uh, South Florida Skunk Ape Experience 1974, it'll come up. It's really, really long. And in there is a picture of the creature that I seen. Um, Sevilla uh, Irwin is an artist. She works with them. She's a very famous artist. She does a lot of paranormal stuff. And she does a lot of conferences as well. She's a sweetheart. And she was living in Texas at the, and she would call me like every other day and, and say, does it look like this? Does it look like we would go back and forth, back and forth. And she actually did the artist rendering of what I seen, you know? So that picture is in there as well in that report. So you get to see everything, the whole area and how she laid it out it was really amazing. That particular summer, a friend of mine, local kid he was a real little rebel you know what i mean and uh never wore shoes and walked along walked over the the gravel nothing hurt his feet he could climb fences and it was just amazing you know yes, yes. and he would they, him and the local kids they would all swim in the in the canals in the swamp mm. and they would say you got to swim down at this end of the canal they called it the turnaround they said the water came in turned around and went out and so the alligators don't come in the turnaround. And me and my cousin are like, you kids are out of your mind. <laughs> there are fish in the turnaround. There are frogs in the turnaround. There are turtles in the turnaround. There are snakes in the turnaround. Why wouldn't the alligators go in the turnaround? There's plenty of food for them, you know. But these kids would all, we would go fishing. And after about two hours of fishing, they'd all jump in and start swimming, you know. And, um, so one day, me and my cousin Anthony are in the turnaround fishing, and an alligator is sunning himself, and he's coming in on the tide. He's floating in, and we're just looking at him, and he's sleeping. He's asleep. He doesn't even know where he is. He's just floating, and he wakes up, and he realizes where he is, and hand to God, this thing ran on the top of the water to get out of the turnaround. Yeah. We just looked at each other like, did you just see that? And he go, my, I turned to my cousin. I go, did you? He goes, yeah. He goes, that's crazy. The, that alligator literally ran on the top of the water to get out of there. So we told my friend, I told my friend this. And he's like, I told you, I told you. They don't come in to turn around. I was like, oh, yeah. He goes, I think 
And he says it was his theory at the time. He said, I think these skunk apes have lairs under the water in the swamps. And he says, I think once they get into that water and they go under the water, they can swim into a, can, uh, a canal that'll bring them into an underground caverns. He says, I'm going to look for the underground cavern in a turnaround. He goes, you know, help me. And I was like, you're out of your mind. I'm not going in there. First of all, you could get caught up in the cattails and drown, right? I'm not going to do it. He's bobbing and weaving. He's going around for like an hour. And I'm sitting on my dirt bike. And he's like, he comes up out of the water. And he's really excited. I I found it. I found it. He goes, I found it. It's a hole like this. I found it. And I'm like. He goes, I'm going. And I go, dude, don't go in. Don't go in. I said, please don't go in. It's probably an alligator den. You're going to get eaten by a mother alligator. Please don't go in. I'm not out in five minutes. You jump on your bike and you ride to my house. You get my brothers. You have them come get me. I didn't have a watch. So I'm counting one Mississippi two minutes right there, right? Because I didn't have a watch. And uh, he jumps in. He swims in. He says, eventually, he says he pops out. On the underground cavern, he says there's all like caves around in a circle. He says it stunk to high heaven. It smelt. He burnt his eyes. It burnt his mouth. He swims back out and he's bouncing off the walls. I mean, I had to hold this kid down. He was jumping up and and I'm like, dude, what's he goes? I found that. I found that. I found. You got to come in. You got to come with me. You got. I got to prove it to you that I found it. And I was like, and he smelled, smelled like a skunk ape. He smelled to high heaven, you know. And yeah. all he had on was a bathing suit, but this was on his skin, the funk, you know. Yeah. And I was like, no, no, I'm not going in. I go, dude, think about this. If your father woke up in the middle of the night to take a piss, and he seen somebody in his house, what is he gonna do? He's gonna shoot him before he asks any questions. Yeah. So what do you think these creatures are going to do if you pop your skinny little head up and they see you? They're going to pop your head right off like a cork. I said, I'm not going in there, you know? And he was like, all right, all right. He goes, but you got to promise me. You got to promise me. You don't tell anybody, not even your cousin. He says, because if the authorities find out about it, they're going to come in here and they're going to blow all these caverns up and we won't even have a place to ride our bikes and do horses and stuff like that. I go, listen, I won't tell anybody. And uh, I never told anybody for like 40 years. I'm on, we were coming back from New, from Florida to New York. I told my cousin, Anthony, I said, I can't wait to get home to tell my brother about this. He's going to lose his mind. And my cousin, Anthony, it's like, you can't tell your brother. I'm like, why not? Yeah. So if you tell your brother, then my father's going to find out. My mother's going to find out. Everybody's going to find out. And they're going to think we're crazy for telling this story. And everybody's going to break our chops. And I uh, guess if you do that, that's what I'm going to kick your ass. And I didn't, you know, me and my cousins, we all loved each other like brothers, but you know, everybody got on everybody's nerve. We all fought, you know, even though he was bigger than me, everybody fought everybody, you know? And uh, I didn't feel like fighting my cousin Anthony. So I was like, all right, you know what? I won't say nothing. I won't say nothing to nobody. Of course I told my two best friends in the neighborhood, but I didn't tell any of my, my family members and, my brother wrote a book called Frank Santariga, Paranormal Family and Friends. And he reached out to my sister and my sister said, talk to your brother. Your brother's the one with all the experiences, you know? Yeah. And I told him about the skunk ape thing. So then he reached back out to my sister to validate it because my brother's crazy about validating everything. And um, she told him yes. 
I remember that summer was crazy. Now my brother-in-law had passed away and my cousin Anthony had passed away. So it was just me and my sister were the only two to, to, to actually validate the story. So that's all. And that didn't come out to like 40 years later, you know, when my, when my brother wrote the book, because I just, only two people I ever told were my two best friends, Richie and Eddie, and that was it, you know? And I said, whatever you guys do, don't say nothing around Anthony, because if you do, Anthony's going to kick all three of our asses, you know? <laughs> and they're like, no, no, we won't say anything in front of your cousin Anthony, because they knew Anthony was nuts, you know? Yeah. But that was my first Bigfoot experience, and Right, you know, so I'm I, I'm not a believer, I'm a knower, you know what I mean? Yeah. I've seen it up close and personal. Yeah. And I know a lot of people claim that the skunk apes in Florida are tall and skinny and sh actually shorter than the ones in the Pacific Northwest or the ones up here in New York. Um, that may be true, but the one I seen looked like King Kong. Yeah, he was he was a massive, he was definitely an alpha, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, and uh. I can't imagine the strength this creature had to stop that Brahma bull in a charge, number right. one, right. and number two, rip its head off. It's just mind-boggling. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, mind-boggling. Yeah, when you were talking, that was my first question, man. What power that sucker must have had to rip, you know, be able to rip a head off a Brahma bull. I've seen, you know, I've seen plenty of Brahma bulls, and they, you're right, they're like trucks, man. They're yeah. huge. So, I mean, if somebody was able to actually have that sort of power to rip off a head, yeah, I'm staying away from it, you know? Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't remember if the bull had its horns uh, sheared, you know, cut off, nubbed. I don't remember because I don't remember. All I remember how big it was and it was white, you know? So even if its horns were, were, were cut flat so they wouldn't, you know, kill anybody, yeah. th for that thing to grab those horns and stop that charging bull it's just the, the strength to do that and then to yeah. just twist and rip that head off crazy I, I can't even i can't even comprehend it you know i tell people right. all the time uh, be careful what you wish for because when you see these everybody's like just want to see one i just want to see one when you see one up close and personal and i don't mean 100 yards away and I don't mean running in front of the car. I mean, you're on a hiking trail and the thing steps out in front of you, 10, 15, 20 feet in front of you. When you see this thing, yeah. your eyes, your brain won't be able to comprehend what your eyes are seeing. Your brain just can't comprehend it because these things aren't supposed to exist. And I tell people that they say, oh, come, you know, you know, this one didn't take a picture. That one didn't take a picture. Because your brain can't comprehend what your eyes are seeing. You know, your, your brain is not saying, oh, snap a picture. Your brain is saying, what the hell is standing in front of me? Because yeah. it's massive. When I tell you they're massive, they're massive. Five feet wide, three feet thick. I mean, just yeah. monsters. I mean, just monsters. They're, it's, they're truly hard. You know, I mean, I, I believe there are people, you know, they are people, they have human DNA, but I mean, the, the power that they have and the size and strength is, is just beyond. Right. Yeah. Here, here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, <clears throat> usually the median average I've heard is nine to 12 feet. Uh, but, uh, you know, so the nine, nine foot skunk ape, yeah, you know, it totally jibes. 
Um, I only have one experience and I never saw, I never saw it. So let me, let me, uh, state that at the beginning. Uh, we were out camping up by Mount Hood, uh, in the, in the uh-huh. and, uh, uh, my brother had a friend along and we're down by the river and we're just hanging out. Well, my uh, brother's friend went across the river, uh, into the woods. And so I hear a big, huge scream, right. From him. And he's running. I mean, he he's running. He, he gets into the river. He trips a little bit, you know. And he's like, I swear a bear's after me or something, right? And, and I was like, oh, geez. You know, first we're like, oh, man. But, you know, in the back of our heads, like, yeah, right. Bear. <laughs> yeah, but then uh, whatever it was, uh, started chucking boulders. And not, not you know, not like rock. Too. I mean, we're talking. Yeah, boulders. Sucking. Yeah. He just yeah. chucking them. And, you know, the first day, yeah, that ain't no bear, you know? No, absolutely I mean, not. You know, we've been born and bred a little bit on the lore and the mythos of Bigfoot, right? So, I mean, anyone up north, up in Oregon, Washington, Idaho, I mean, yeah, they're going to, they're at least open to the possibility that there is one, right? Yeah, but most people, we just kind of accept it and move on, right? And, uh, I, yeah going back to the brahma bull dude i mean i remember hearing a story one time i'm out at yellowstone and they have of course buffalo there and yeah. these buffalo dude they are huge i mean they huge yeah i saw one standing next to a big old ford truck and it you know it overshadowed it and mm-hmm. uh, uh one time when we we're out there uh the ranger said no you can't go up into this area right and they're like, all right, all right, must be bears or something. That's the line that they said. Well, there were some Native Americans in the area. And, of course, you know, we would start, you know, talking with them. They're like, no, that's no bears, man. Let me tell you who it is. And yeah. I'm like, no freaking way, man. Because he and they said openly, the, the rangers know exactly what's going on. They, of course, you, you can't hurt the tourist trade. So no. it's ma- it's magically bears or so forth. Yeah, but let me yeah. tell you some. Uh, it ain't no it ain't no bear that took down a huge buffalo, you know. Yeah. And so yeah, yeah, dude. I I know exactly. Uh, and it, to be eyewitness to that. I mean, see, I can only imagine. I've never had any eyewitness accounts, but something that large banging on the police car <laughs> you know uh, i always refer to those moments as poop your pants moments yeah because you're right i mean you it's something that uh your mind can't even comprehend what do we do we we go deer in the headlights right we're like yeah what the heck is that? as our mind yeah. is trying to catch up to us and uh all i've got to say to that is wow you know yeah no uh, it's, it's mind-boggling yeah no i, I mean it's just yeah, I mean, I have three nieces that work in national parks. They're all park rangers. And they told me straight up when they became, you know, once they got their d- degree in um, biology or whatever, you know, they become official rangers, they get a, an official handbook. And in the handbook, will tell it tells you what the proper protocol is if campers come across Bigfoots. Yeah. And... It also tells you what the proper protocol is if campers come across dogmen. Oh, and, yeah. And uh, it's two different protocols. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And if if it's a Bigfoot, 
And my nieces really don't like to discuss the dog man side of things. They don't care about talking about Bigfoot, but they really don't like to talk about the dog man. But they say Uncle Al, you know, and, I, and I'm very close with all of them. Uncle Al, uh, yeah, if, if a camper comes across, or if one comes into a camp site, then we take that camper and we move them to another site. Okay. And that's it. And we, we give that site, the Bigfoot has its roam over there because they really don't feel that the Bigfoot are, are dangerous, you know? But if a dogman comes into a campsite, they move everybody on that side of the mountain to the other side, and they close that whole side of the mountain down, and they say they're doing something there. They're, yeah. they're working on that side, of the, and nobody's allowed to go to that side of the mountain. And they just shut the whole thing down, and that's it. And you're yeah. not allowed up there at any point in time until they feel it's safe enough to go up there. They won't even let people go up there. I mean, it's just like, you know, when you look at this giant park and this giant mountain and they'll shut one side of it down, that's saying they, they believe that these creatures are dangerous, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's crazy, you know, and uh, I'm lucky enough to have nieces that work in three separate states, national parks, forests. I also am lucky enough to have a, a nephew who's a Marine major mm -hmm. out of uh, South Carolina. And uh, I, uh, I get a lot of, well, I, I get, he was a head of like a, a helicopter squad or something. And they would go from South Carolina to Florida, you know, mm -hmm. and every time his unit would go up to go to Florida to transport. So as soon as he got up, he said, orange balls would come out of the ocean and watch them. He said, and there were, you know, and he were other pilots who say, Hey, Mage, you know, what are we supposed to do with these things? Are we supposed to engage, you know? And his orders from the colonels would just say, leave them alone and do what you got, what you're, what you're scheduled to do and make believe they're not there. Yeah. And that's what that, that was the protocol. Just leave those orange balls of light alone. Let them follow you. Let them watch you. Go to Florida, do your transport, come back like that, and and that's what they did. That was the procedure, and they never had any issues with them. You know what I mean? So, I don't know if there were pilots before that protocol went into effect that actually engaged, and then something happened. You know, but yeah. they don't engage anymore. You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Alfred goes back up to New York, right? And this time, I mean, the torch is lit. You're, you know. You're fully, you're not, you know, like you said, a knower. Okay. How long does it take you to get up into the uh, cat skills and things like that and start poking around? Uh, well, you know, I was, I was 12 years old at the time and I had, uh, what do they call that? PTSD yeah. for like three years. Um, my father, my bedroom was like a prison cell. Okay. It was like eight feet long and five feet wide or six feet wide. It was actually a front porch at one time. And my father closed it off. He was a carpenter. He closed it off to make a bedroom out of it, you know? And the only only windows he had in his carpenter shop was big picture windows that you would put on the front of a house. So my bedroom had this big picture window and we had a little garden in front of our house. It was maybe, you know, 10 by 10, you know what I mean? With a yeah. little bit of bushes and some rose gardens for my mother or something, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I used to think that the Bigfoot was going to step in over those little shrubs because the, the bushes were only like two feet high, you know? 
And I used to think it was going to put its arm through that glass window. And I couldn't get further enough away from that window because his arms are so long, they hang down to their knees. And it was going to grab me and drag me out of that window, you know? And 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 I had that nightmare for like three years, you know what I mean? Before I actually passed and then, you know, Girls came into the picture and, you know, yeah. you know, cars came into the picture and, you know, yeah. who, who's thinking about Bigfoot now? You know what I mean? But um, yeah. no, it took, it took quite a while for me to get back rolling into the paranormal. You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. Of course, I did things with my brother um, and I went out with him and investigations, but it was mostly ghost stuff with him. You know, um, I did some I did more ghost stuff with a couple of my best friends, like my friend Harry and my friend Eddie. Um, we did some, we did like two or three different ghost things. Two were up in the Catskills. Um, my girlfriend at the time's father had a house up on one of the mountains. So we would go up there, um, not so much in the summers because they used it in the summers, but we would go up in the winters to go skiing, you know? Yeah. And um, so we would go up there and we used to pass this burnt hotel all the time, you know, and uh, and uh, my brother had told us a story about it, how there was a tragic fire and a lot of people lost their lives and yada, yada, yada. So one day we were going up one weekend, we were going up and I said, let's go by this hotel. I was in school. I was in school down in the city. I was going to school for photography for the Center of Media Arts. So I said, Let's go by this hotel and let's take some photographs and let's go in. You know, we are we were there with our girlfriends. We had the whole weekend, you know. We were gonna ski all day, party all night. And uh, so we get there and as we pull into the driveway, and it was one of those driveways that went down and came up on the other side. And we went down and parked and we all got out. It was me, Eddie, and Harry and our girlfriends. And I, I had a couple of cameras that I gave a couple of and as we were getting into, as we were going down in the driveway, my stomach just dropped. You know, like when, you, when your stomach drops, like when you go on a, on a hit, a, like a, a plane or something. I had that feeling, and it's just like, I don't know if we should be doing this, man. You know, now I'm thinking, no, we shouldn't be doing this. But at this point, everybody else is all psyched up to do it, you know? Yeah. So we go in, I go in, and there, were a lot of burnt the hotel was half half up half down it was knocked down it was burnt i went in and i walked in and i looked around i was in the lobby and there was a staircase that went up to the right and about banishes that went across and um half of the steps were missing so you couldn't even get up there you know and i took one photo of the banishers i felt like there was something there looking at me and everybody went around and and then when I went back to school that Monday, I developed the pictures and, you know, there was some orbs and stuff and some of the photographs and, uh, you know, but in that one photograph that I took, there was a little girl looking at me through the banister oh. and it just made my heart drop, just yeah. made my heart drop. And I was like, it's like how like she was like, so scared. Like, so, I mean, she must've perished in the fire. I don't know. And, um, so when I showed everybody the picture, and of course all the girls got hysterical. Our girlfriends were like crying, hysterical. She never went there, but a beep, but a boop. You know, my my friends were all psyched up. Oh, we got to go back, you know. <laughs> and I'm yeah. like, we went back, but when we went back, 
I went in the back of the hotel and I dug a little hole and I put that photograph in a hole and I said a little prayer and I buried it. I put some holy water over the top of it. I made a little cross out of uh, popsicle sticks. You know what I mean? I said a prayer over it and I said, uh, you know, please uh, forgive me for taking this photograph of you and your, you know, your worst moment, you know, yada, yada, yada. And we left it there, you know, and then, um, Harry was going to school. Harry was going to school up in Connecticut for mechanics. Harry was always a, a mechanic guy. He was always working on his car. Always had a, a, a barracuda, you know what I mean? With yeah. side pipes and everything, you know? Yeah. He was like one of those uh, car guys, you know? And uh, he was going to school up in Connecticut for um, his for car and his car. And his uh, roommate in his dorm lived in this little town up in the middle of the woods up in Connecticut, the Ber Berkshire Mountains. Yeah. And, he, and he used to tell Harry about this mansion that was in the middle of the woods that belonged to this rich, rich family. I mean, like, you know, Rockefeller rich kind of family, you know, from the old country. And he said, um, you know, nobody goes there. Nobody goes on the property. Everybody's afraid of it. You know, nobody in the town goes near it just to get from the road to the house. It's like a mile driveway, you know? Yeah, so he's yeah. telling Harry this and Harry's like, oh, Al, we got to go. We got to go, you know? So I said, okay, okay. I'll come up with Eddie one, one weekend up to you. And then from you or from you in Connecticut, we'll go up there. So we drove, Eddie had a Nova and we drove up to Harry's house. I mean, the, the school, we left Eddie's Nova there. And then we jumped in Harry's Barracuda and we went to this town to meet his friend. We roll into town and it's like Mayberry, you know what I mean? <laughs> One road and we, we we said, he said, I'll meet you at the diner. It's okay. We go to the diner. We get to the diner. Um, it's late in the afternoon, like 4.30, 5 o'clock, something like 6 o'clock. And the sheriff sees the Barracuda outside and comes in the diner and says, whose car is this? You know, because he sees the New York plates on it. You know, we're in Connecticut. Yeah. And Harry goes, it's my car, you know, and he's like, uh, what are you doing here? You know, what are you doing in my town? And we thought this was kind of weird, you know, like, why is the sheriff asking us what we're doing in his town? We, we just, we could just be driving by, you know? Yeah. And Harry says, Oh, you know, I'm waiting for so-and-so we go to school together and you know, whatever Stanford or wherever they were in Connecticut, they went to school yeah. and, uh, Stratford, I don't know what it was. And, uh, he said, uh, you know, we just invited us up for the weekend. You know, we're going to hang out with him. He says, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, so then a kid came in, said hello to the sheriff. He said, "Yeah, no, they're coming to my house. We're gonna hang out." Yeah, yada yada yada. So the kid took us to the to this road. He says, "I'm not going down this road." <laughs> he says, "You guys can go down this road." He says, "But I'm not going down this road." Um, I said, "Okay." So again, we we he left us at that point, and we went down this road. So I seemed like it took forever to get to the house. The closer we got to the house, the worse vibes I got. I felt like it was getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And I told Harry, I said, you know what, Hat? Let's just turn around. Let's get the hell out of here, man. We don't need to go into this house. And him and Eddie were like, no way. Look at the size of this place. It's a mansion, you know. Mm. We're definitely going in, you know. Mm. So I said, okay. Um, we go, I said, I'm not going in. So I'm not going in. I said, if you guys want to go in, I gave Eddie one of my cameras 
and I gave Harry a camera. I had like three or four cameras, you know, like being a photographer, I had like five different cameras <laughs> and uh, they went in and I walked the grounds and I was just taking pictures of the house from the outside. They had a house was on the there was a lake there. They had a boathouse, beautiful beach on the lake, beautiful lake, massive pool, massive. And I'm standing by the pool and I'm taking pictures of the upper floors. And I swear to God, it was like, it was like, I, it, it looked like it had to be six stories high, this house, you know? Yeah. And taking pictures of it. And I hear, I hear Eddie and Harry screaming. So I run to the front to see what's going on. I thought maybe the, the cops were there, you know? Yeah. And um, I run to the front and Harry's shirt is ripped off his back. And he's got, he's got scratches on his back. And Eddie's like all disheveled, right? He looks, got his head, he's got a big bump on his head. I was like, what's going on? He said, Harry goes, I went down in the basement. And there was a room down in the basement. It looked almost like... Um, uh, some kind of ritual room with an altar and all this crazy stuff. I guess they would maybe have called it a game room with like the deer heads and stuff like that on the walls. But Harry said it looked like an altar, like something like that they would do black magic. He said, and something grabbed me and ripped my shirt off my back and then pushed me. And when it pushed him, he said he went flying like he's never been pushed before you know mm -hmm. and harry's nickname was dirty harry so when you fought harry <laughs> you could expect to get you know something dirty happened to you. he said ripped and scratched him on the back eddie went upstairs and he said al when you walk in the foyer everything was marble he said the steps were about 20 feet wide you could drive a tractor trailer up them all marble he said there was chandeliers there was paintings. Yeah. No, no, nobody from that town went in that house and touched it. Like the kids from the town didn't hang out there and party. There was no graffiti. It looked like the people were still living in it. He said, he said, I don't understand how no one would go in. Like in our neighborhood, everybody would have robbed that place blind. You know what I mean? With the, <laughs> you know what I mean? And um, Eddie said, something grabbed him on the top of the steps and threw him head over heels down these marble steps. He said, you know, he said, I held on to your camera out so it wouldn't break, you know, but he says, something threw me down. So I said, let's get the hell out of here. Yeah. So we got in this Barracuda and Harry blew through that town at 125 miles an hour. We couldn't get to New York fast enough. Dang. When I went back to school that weekend, that Monday, and I took, I and I developed all the film and all the cameras. Again, there were orbs and white mist and white streaks of light that, you know, just, didn't know what the hell they were, you know. I uh, wasn't even going to theorize on it, what, what it could possibly be. But in one of the photographs that I took on the outside, there was a woman in black looking out the window watching me. Oh, boy. Yeah, so we, when I developed that picture, we used to hang out in the woods down in the Bronx called Van Cortland Park. It's a huge park, huge, huge park. The Van Cortland family owned the park, they donated, owned the land, they donated it to the park. There was bridal paths down here and horse trails and all kinds of stuff. And they had their own family plot down there. And it was surrounded by like 10 foot stone walls with 10 foot iron gates. Yeah. Well, I climbed over those stone walls and I went over to like the old lady, like the, the matron of the house, right? 
the, the mother of the family. And I dug a little hole and I put that picture in there, whatever, because I figured rich people want to be with rich people, right? You know? Yeah, yeah. And I buried it in that plot with the old lady from the Van Cortland family. I said a prayer over it and I got over that wall and I got out of there and I left that photograph there because I didn't want any of that energy hanging around me in my house, you know? Yeah. So, uh, so we did, we, you know, with my friends, we hit, we hit the, we actually did another one, another ghost investigator, again, going up to my girlfriend's house. There was a train that used to run from the Catskills down to the city, pick the people up and bring them. Cause back in the fifties and the Catskills was the place to be, you know? And it was a horrible derailment. The train fell off the tracks, rolled down the hill, people died and, they just kind of left this skeleton of a train there in the woods, you know? Yeah. And we, we went there one time as well. So we did a couple of ghost stuff up in the Catskills and that one ghost thing up in the Berkshires, you know what I mean? Yeah. But at that point, um, Bigfoot wasn't on. I didn't think Bigfoot was in New York. You know, I really didn't think he was here. You know, we were doing more ghost stuff than anything. Mm-hmm. It was just easier to find places yeah. like that. You know, there was a lot of, burnt out remnants of hotels in the Catskills from the forties and fifties that we could have, we could have hit one right after the other, after the other, if we wanted to, you know, but Mm -hmm. every time I would find something in one of my photographs, I just felt like I don't want this thing hanging around me. You know what I mean? It felt like if I didn't do something respectful to this photograph, this energy, whatever it is, is going to be attached to me. And I did not want it attached to me. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, man. Uh, when when did uh, Bigfoot come up on your radar up there? What, what like, uh, instigated it? Okay. Um, there's there's a, a place up here um, called Nuclear Lake. It's a lake. Um, what's it called? Uh United, um, United, oh, United something, United, there was a, a, a company that was mining uranium here, okay? okay? Yeah. It was a federal land, they were mining uranium, it was wep- and they were um, processing it on the lake, turning it into weapons-grade uranium, you know? They had a processing plant on the lake, and um, I didn't really know this whole backstory to this place, Friend of mine told me to go there one time. It was um, good fishing, he said, and nice hiking trails. The Appalachian Trail ran through it. And I would take my son. I had a 125-pound German Shepherd, and we would go hiking, you know, through there all the time. You know, me and my son and the dog. Sometimes we fish. We never caught it. I wouldn't wouldn't eat anything that came out of a lake called Nuclear Lake. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. United uh, Core, something Core. That was the name of the company. Anyway... While they were refining the uranium, the processing plant blew up and ended up in the lake. Okay. So the government came in, spent millions of dollars cleaning up the lake, sealed the mine. That was the end of the mining thing there. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a high rate of cancer in that area. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so... I was so I was familiar with the place and my heard my neighbor who's a local guy born and raised up here and I heard him talking to a couple of his friends they're all hunters they actually he has a drag race he drag race he's got a, a racing car in, in the driveway you know 
and I was hanging out with him one time and we were talking about his dragster and a couple of his friends rolled up. They were hunters and they were like, Hey, you're never going to guess what happened to us. We were hunting the, uh, the Appalachian trail, you know, we were coon hunting, you know? And he's like, Oh yeah. And I said, yeah, we, were, we had the dogs they had red bone hounds, these big coon dogs. And so I'm just sitting there eavesdropping, listening to it. Right. And they're telling my neighbor about um, how they were, they went, they came out off of the Appalachian Trail and they ended up on the mining road to the lake. And they said, as they were walking up, because they were going to take the mining road to where it ends and then go back onto the Appalachian Trail. And they were walking up, up, up uh, towards this little area that the, everybody calls the campsite. It's like a clearing where people would camp out at the lake. You're not supposed to be at the lake after night in the dark. There's a ranger <laughs> state. There's a ranger station at the front of the lake. Oh. It's a federal park, but there's no signs for it. There's it's gated and they have actual rangers on station 24 seven, 365 days a year. And they'll patrol the lake to the end of the mining road every night. Yeah. So anyway, these guys were on there. It was after the patrol. Like they think they would do their last patrol at 11. So they were on the, they were on there around 12 and they were passing. They were just coming up on like we call the campsite when the dogs stopped and wouldn't go any further. And they were like, what's wrong with the dogs, you know? Yeah. And then they started getting rocks thrown at them. And they're thinking, what the hell's going on? The dogs won't go any further. And these, so they think it's high school kids fooling around with their girlfriends and they don't want these guys catching them. Right. Yeah. So they said to, they say, Hey, listen, if you don't stop throwing rocks at us, we're going to sick the dogs on you. You know, and these two big red bone house, you know, you don't want to get attacked by them. Right. Right. And, uh, well, rocks kept coming at them. So they said, go get them. They told the dogs to go get them. Yeah. They could have scared the shit out of these kids. The kids will come running out saying, stop, stop. So, well, yeah. The dogs got about halfway and they stopped dead. Then they turned around and they ran past the two hunters and they ran all the way back to their car, which was like yeah. two miles away. Okay. Non-stop with their tails between the legs. So these two guys look at each other like, what the hell is over there? You know, now they got small guns, like 22s because they're hunting they're hunting, you know, well, what you call it, coons, you know? Yeah. They're not carrying big, powerful rifles. So another rock comes at him, and he says, if you don't, if you throw another rock at me, I swear to God, I'm going to put a round into the tree. Another rock comes out. He puts a round into the tree. It says, seven-foot Sasquatch stumped out, stepped out, and screamed at him. Oh, man. He said, at that point, they, one guy dropped his gun. The other guy just took off running. They ran back to the truck. When they got to the truck, the dogs were underneath the truck. They threw the dogs in the truck, they, and they drove off. They left the, the rifle there, left it right in the middle of the trail. They said, the hell with it. And, and then one guy said, he'll never go back. And the other guy said, um, I still hunt it, but I don't go out to the lake anymore. I stay away from the lake, you know? But um, so I heard this, and I was like, I got to do a little research here. I'm not, I'm not a big researcher by trade. I'm more an investigator experiencer, but when I have to do research, I do. So I start researching the Appalachian trail and I come across more and more Bigfoot experiences on the Appalachian trail up here and at that campsite, you know, and that's, 
how we got started um, researching the Bigfoot up here, you know? Yeah. And uh, one thing led to another, and um, I found what I call the sacred site by accident. Yeah, there's a sacred, I call a sacred site. Um, it's, it's very, it's very strange. It's off trail, about maybe a mile off trail. And you, you got, and the other reason I found it is because we were, me and one of my cameramen, Bill, we were doing the, the Pine Bush UFO fair that summer, right? And we had a friend of ours come in from England, this woman, Heidi. And she's a blogger from England. She covers all the paranormal symposiums and stuff, you know? And she says, Al, show me, show me Bigfoot. I want to see a Bigfoot den or the structures or something, you know? We don't have them in England. So I said, okay. So Bill and I took her to Nuclear Lake. And that particular summer, we had a drought in New York. So we were actually able to get deeper into the swamp where the swamp was dried up. Yeah. And we were sitting in we were sitting in the swamp and I'm showing her a big tree structure. And I'm saying, this is what the the the, the big ones do. This is a tree structure. And she's taking pictures. And I showing her little ones on the ground that the juveniles do copying the parents, you know? Yeah. So we're, we're and Bill's filming because Bill's always filming. He's the camera guy. He's always filming. He puts his camera down on a log, and he says, "Man, the mosquitoes are eating me alive." He's getting a bug spray out, and you can hear him spraying himself, and I'm spraying myself. You can hear me talking, and you can hear Heidi talking heavy English accent. You can't mistake her. She's spraying herself down, and as we're walking, there must have been a fire in the woods that summer. I mean, that winter. And I seen what looked like a stone cairn up on top of a hill. Now, this particular woods has these stone cairns all over the woods. And the first time I seen them, it freaked me out. I thought I was in Blair Witch, right? <laughs> but I see this stone, what looks like a stone cairn way up on top of this hill. So I said, Bill, zoom in on that thing. Let's see what the hell it is. So he zooms in on it. He's like, holy crap, Al, look at this thing. So he goes, how the hell are we going to get up there? Because it's all burnt out, you know? I said, follow me. And I just made a beeline up the side of this mountain. I just chopped everything out of my way with my machete, all the dead bushes and everything. Get up to the top. And we get up to the top, and there's a plateau. It turns out to a giant plateau. It's like 200 yards in a, in a circle with these giant megalithic stones set up in a circle with hundreds of stones on top of them. Oh when you get up there, there's arches and X's and bends and breaks and trees pinned down on the tre other trees. And we're filming all this. So we decided to call a friend of ours, this do uh, Dr. Rita Louise. She's like an archaeologist, right? So we call Dr. Rita and we say, and we're FaceTiming her. And she's looking at these stones and she's like, where are you guys in England, Ireland? You know, we're like, no, we're in New York. She's like, oh my God, you found a megalithic site, you know? And we're looking at it and it was just, I said, I'm coming back here. The energy of this place was just so relaxing. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not the type of guy that would sleep outside in a sleeping bag. I need to be in the tent because I, I snakes freak me out. Okay. Yeah. 
well, this location, I could sleep underneath this arch in just a sleeping bag and not worry about anything messing with me. That's the kind of energy there, right? So anyway, Bill goes back to his house. He's watching the video. And when he put his camera down on the log to get the, the spray out, he heard a woman's voice call his name twice. It said, Bill, Bill. And it freaked him out. He calls me up. He says, dude, we captured an EVP in the swamp. It said my name twice. And uh, he played it for me. And I was like, he goes, I said, well, what are you freaking out for? This is what we do. You know, this is why we investigate. He goes, yeah, but they said my name, not yours, you know? And everybody thought it was Heidi, like everybody who listened to it. But Heidi's got such a heavy English accent. Yeah. And this woman had a soft, very soft-spoken whisper kind of voice, you know? And she was calling to him. I don't know who it was. I, I have my theories, but he says no. But um, so we got this amazing Class A EVP. There's no doubt about what this thing says. It's that clear, crystal clear. We didn't even know we had it. So we found this location. So I went back and I called my psychic who lives in Arkansas. She reads everything through me. She says, I'm a conduit. And she said, okay, this site, she said, this site was built by white men in robes thousands and thousands of years ago. Whoa. She said, these woods have an energy tomb like I've never felt in my life. She's fifth, gen fifth generation psychic. Her mother's her grandmothers are Native Americans. Mm -hmm. She says she's never felt energy like this place. She says uh, the Native Americans believe it's a sacred site because they've seen the star people going in and out, coming in and out of the mountain and in and out of the lake. Mm -hmm. There have been people there seeing UFOs siphoning water out of the lake. There have been balls of light that come in and out of the lake. Um, Native Americans use this location as a sacred site. And now the Sasquatch use it as a sacred site. Yeah. And, um, and there's a lot more. There's, I've done so many expeditions there. And every time I go there, something, something different happens. And there's a lot to it. But that's, that's how I started investigating there. And I found the sacred site by accident. And every time we go there, um, I always take people who are not on the team with me to validate my experiences because, you know, they, they're not going to lie for me. They have no reason to lie for me. I make everybody sign a confidentiality clause and uh, what you would call it, a clause. Um, uh, what do you call that? If you get injured, you can't sue me. I forgot what they call it. Um, right. Liability. Liability. And then, yeah, and then yeah. ND, NDAs for uh, yeah. uh, being able to talk about it. Right. And uh, and every time I've gone there, every single time I've gone to the sacred site, something has happened every single time. And I've been there many, many, many times. Yeah. And uh, but I have like five other locations now that I'm working, you know, mm -hmm. different times of the year at different locations, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, I haven't been to the sacred site in two years, but I've been back. I was I, I did go back this summer, but um, but uh, I've been working all these other sites, and you could only spend so much time at each place, you know. Yeah. And uh, I'm not, I can't do this full time. I'm not independently wealthy, you know. So, <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, yeah, and it's just mind boggling. I mean, the stuff that happens there. I've brought 
I brought a guy there. He was uh, an alphabet agency friend of mine. Mm-hmm. We had an experience there. Blew his mind. Okay. I took a couple of ghost hunting women there. Yeah. It was on their bucket list. Not to tell, not to get into the whole story, but long story short, mm-hmm. they've crossed it off their bucket list. They won't even go in the woods for a picnic anymore. They won't even go to the park for a picnic anymore. Yeah. That's how crazy it was, you know. And uh, every, like I said, every time, and I just went there this summer with Chris Reinhardt from Discover Bigfoot. Yeah, and we've had an ama- we had a crazy experience there, and we didn't even stay the whole night because. Um, it got really, really cold, and he, he was like, his teeth were chattering, you know, and I, I couldn't get him warm. I had hand warmers and all kinds of stuff, but yeah. he was cold to the core, you know, yeah. and I didn't want him to get pneumonia being out in the woods because he wasn't dressed properly, so yeah. we left early. But even though we, we we left early before it got dark, but we were still there for four hours and we did experience a whole array of things, you know, a lot of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just it's amazing. Um the white robes on the hill, right? The megalith structures. What do you I mean, do you have a theory about that? Could it be like uh you know, like almost like druids from the north, you know, like myth. Well, you know, like yeah, she Norsemen. said she said she said white men in, in black robes. That's what she said. But you know, we we have these structures here in the northeast called ancient stone chambers. Okay, and they're all over the northeast, from New Hampshire to Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. I think it's the further south they go, and um, they they call them up here. They call them colonial root cellars. That's the okay. official thing, but. They're not root cellars because A, they're above ground and root cellars are below. And B, they're made with megalithic stones that weigh 10 tons when the colonial farmers built houses out of wood. You know what I mean? Sure. sure. And my psychic says, again, she says they're they're portals to different dimensions. She says that again, they were built by white men, white men in robes. Um, they're very I believe personally, I, I, they're they're built on ley lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're built on ley lines that have aquifers running underneath them, and they, she says their doorways are portals where things come in and out of, and they were used for religious ceremonies and stuff like that. And yeah. I was in one of them once by myself, and well, no, I was with my partner Brian that day, and we were asking all kinds of questions like, um, "Who built this? Was it?" You know, was it Romans? Was it uh, Vikings? Was it Egyptians? And we were getting no response. And then I mentioned the word Phoenicians. Ah. And the meters went absolutely crazy. All the meters lit up when I said the word Phoenicians. Now, we were trying to go through the list of all the ancient builders that built with stone. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And when we got to Phoenicians, all the meters we had lit up went crazy. So we, so then I asked how many of these. No, that was that was at one. That was that was at yeah. That was at that's this particular chamber is on a, a Native American mountain, a sacred mountain called Ninnam Mountain. And then I was there again by myself. Brian wasn't with me this time. And this particular chamber has like an altar in the back of the chamber. And I was in there 
and I was in there and I figured I'll sit down on the altar and I'll do some EVPs. And I went in there and as I went in, I felt the, the touch of a small woman's hand on my arm. Like someone had put their hand on my arm, right? Yeah. And, you know, of course I got chills down my whole body and I said to myself in my head, relax Al, this is what you're here for, you know? And the image that came to my mind's eye when I was being touched was a young and native American female. Okay. And I asked her, I said, how many, I had my digital voice recorder going. I said, how many chambers are in this area? And on my digital voice recorder, I got like 17 taps. Like yeah. she tapped the microphone 17 times. So yeah. we only, so we know there are 17 chambers in that area. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, we we were there one time, was there with a group of friends. Before I put the team together, I was going out with friends from work, hence the name the Bronxville Paranormal Society, because I worked in the town called Bronxville. Mm -hmm. And all the guys I went with were all mailmen like myself. And we all went out and we did these investigations. Well, we were at this chamber with um, my cousin and uh, her boyfriend and a bunch of other people and a couple that were invited by other people. There was one woman who's claimed she knew everything about every chamber. And uh, we were at this one particular chamber in the mountain chamber. And uh, we were doing all of our stuff and we were underneath the doorway. And in the doorway, if you put like a, a compass in between in the middle of the door, the compass just spun uncontrollably, just uncontrollably the compass spun. And we were doing all this stuff and a group of people were walking by, like a young group of kids, like teenagers. And they said, hey, are you guys one of those paranormal teams you see on TV? And I turned around and I said, yeah, we're the Bronxville Paranormal Society. Just spit it out. And that's how the name <laughs> came about because everybody I worked with, was we all worked from Bronxville. Even my cousin lived in Bronxville, you know what I mean? Yeah. So we were all from Bronxville and everybody's like, oh, that's a cool name, you know, BPS, you know? <laughs> and yeah. uh, so we were in there and my cousin was in there with a, like we were going in groups of five because there was a lot of us, like 15. And my cousin was in there with this other girl that worked with me, another another woman who was a, a male lady. And the woman came out, the male lady came out and said, oh, you gotta go in there, your cousin's having a breakdown. I said, what do you mean? She said, mm. well, we're all in there and we're hearing guitar playing. Like we can hear a guitar playing. Ooh. And she says, there's nobody on the, because the roofs of these chambers are all like mud and grass, you know? So she's like, there wasn't anybody on top of the roof with a with a you know a, a radio or something, right? It's like, no, it's just there's just us. You know, there's nobody here, nobody on top of the roof. I mean, we're doing our experiments around the location, but we weren't any there wasn't anybody on the roof and nobody was playing a radio. Because well, we hear a guitar playing and your cousin's freaking out. Yeah. So I went in to talk to my cousin, and we were there, and hand to God, everybody went out, it was just me and my cousin in there, and we're sitting in there, and I didn't hear any guitar playing. And then all of a sudden, we heard like a bass line. And it felt like it was coming out of the rock. The rock was vibrating. Oh. <laughs> and I looked at her, and she looked at me, and she just started crying hysterical. And I grabbed her, and I walked her away from everybody. I must have walked her like a quarter mile away. Her brother had just passed away. My cousin had just passed away. 
and he played guitar in one band and bass in another. Yeah. And he was letting her know that he was okay. It was a message. I, and I told her, I said, you know, this is a message for you, right? She goes, I know who it is loud and clear. You don't have to. And she was like, thank you for taking me today. Cause she, you know, she's a lawyer by trade. She doesn't really not into the paranormal, but I kind of talked her into going and she's like, Al, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Can't thank you enough for taking me because I got a message today that'll stick with me for the rest of my life, you know? And, yeah. um, and like I said, my psychic says it's a doorway. They're, they're portals and all kinds of stuff comes in and out of them. And, uh, we found that particular day, we went to another chamber. And my brother said to me, bring your night vision goggles. And I said, for what? I'm going during the day, you know? <laughs> she said, bring your night vision goggles. Just bring them. I was like, okay. At the time, I didn't have an IR camera or a UV camera or a, a thermal camera. I didn't have any of that stuff, you know? I was going out with like the bare minimum, you know? Sure. All the old school stuff. And, uh, so I had the night vision camera. So we're all in this other chamber, which is much, much bigger at a different location. What I did find out was, which was weird, no matter where the chambers were, whether they were in the middle of a field, in the sun, or underneath the tree canopy, they're all 60 degrees. All of them, every single one of them. Don't know why that is, but they're all 60 degrees. So we're in this one chamber. And then I said, oh, wow, I got my night vision goggles. I forgot to look. And, and this one woman standing next to me, giving me the history of all the chambers. She knew everything about everything, yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. I look up, I'm in the night vision goggles. And there across the back of the wall are all these ancient symbols. Ooh. You can't see them with your naked eye. You can't get a picture of them in regular. You can't put a flashlight up against them. You can't. And when I seen those, I went absolutely crazy. She was so excited that she was choking me trying to get the binoculars off my neck so she could see because she knew everything about everything, but she had no idea these things were there. Yeah. And when we, so she's seen them, and then we passed the binoculars around everybody so everybody could see. And we tried to get them at the time. Like I said, I didn't have a, uh, an IR camera or anything like that. So we couldn't get any image of, but we did go back later, me and my partner, Brian, and with, with the right equipment. And we did get photographs of all of them. And Brian researched them. And Brian's, Brian's brilliant, especially when it comes to research and in computers, like a computer whiz beyond. I touch a computer, it blows up. He could do all kinds of crap with it. And he researched it and he found out that all of those symbols are ancient symbols from different people. Like there's Chinese symbols, there's Arabic symbols, there's Native American symbols, there's Egyptian symbols, but they're all in this one big section of this wall. That, I, we couldn't figure out what they meant because separately you could figure out, well, this means this and this means that, but it didn't make any sense when you put them all together, mm -hmm. at least to us, we couldn't figure it out, you know? Yeah. And, uh, we were in there one day. We went in there. We were gonna. I was. I was invited to a symposium, and I was sitting at the sitting at the table with uh, this guy, David uh, Roundtree. Now, David is an electrical engineer. I don't know if you know who David is, right? Hmm. Okay. Well, he's an electrical engineer. And he does a lot of stuff with energy on in in, in the paranormal field. Mm -hmm. So I said to him, I said, Dave, let me ask you a question. How do you know if a portal opens up? You know, how do you know? And he says, Al, you know how you know? 
the radiation level goes through the roof. When the radiation level goes through the roof, you know the portal has opened up. So I said, okay, thank you. Told call, I said, Brian, we're going back to the chamber. We're going to try some stuff. We go back to the chamber. I have a, I have a Geiger counter. We go in. We do a radiation check. No, no radiation, just brown radiation, nothing, you know? We, we're filming in we're filming in thermal we're filming in ir we're filming in uv we're filming in everything and i break out a tibetan singing bowl and i start filling the chamber up with frequency frequency and vibration and i'm going faster and it's radiating in the stone and this stone is ringing like a bell and all of a sudden my tongue is tingling, my teeth are tingling, my gums are tingling, my fingers are tingling, and we're filming, and I'm standing with my back to the door, and Brian's filming in thermal, and I'm filming in IR. Mm -hmm. I'm filming him in IR, he's filming me in thermal, and something peeked out of the stone, like something, it wasn't on the other side of the door looking in, it was on the inside of the door, but when it peeked out to take a look at us, it went right in the door jam. So you, Brian's seen its silhouette. Yeah, it's like, dude, something just peeked out at us, you know. And we turned around and we felt the stone and we did this and we checked the radiation level and it was through the roof. And he's like, dude, we got we got to get out of here. We're 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 in a danger zone, you know. And I was yeah. like. I didn't want to go because we were having so much experiences, but I was like, okay, you know, if it's, if it's dangerous, then we got to go. So we left, you know, and we went to another chamber and again with the, the IR camera, which was a weird chamber. It was mm -hmm. built like a dome, right? Yeah. It, but it had a little tiny door, like a three foot door. All the other ones, the door is a five, six feet high. Yeah. It had a little tiny door. So I did some research on this chamber because it was it was weird looking, you know. I didn't like the vibe I was getting from it. And it turns out that there was a dude, there was a guy who lived in that neighborhood, and he was walking his dog. He had a little lap dog. He was walking his dog uh, along the road back there. And in his those these these areas or these houses are built in the woods. And there's no streetlights, no nothing. He's walking his little dog with a flashlight. And he sees three small figures with red eyes floating above the ground. Because he hit it with the flashlight, right? Yeah. yeah. They're floating and they're going inside that little doorway. And they fit perfectly inside that little door. So he picks up his dog and he runs home. He's like, the <laughs> hell with that. So then I come across another kid, you know, college kid, played football on the college team, big kid, big kid, you know, mm -hmm. a tank of a kid. He's coming home from a friend's house one night, 12 o'clock, 1 o'clock in the morning, watching Monday Night Football or something. He's got a flashlight, and he sees like a six-foot guy with red eyes in a robe go into the chamber. And he goes, oh, no, no. He goes, I'm not going to least These guys are not going to do any devil worship in my neighborhood, right? Because right. I'm going to go and I'm going to fix these. I'm going to kick these guys' ass. Yeah. He goes in the chamber with his flashlight, and he doesn't see anybody. And he knows. He's just seen the six-foot guy walk into the chamber. And he's looking around, doesn't see anybody. All of a sudden, he gets tackled. 
and bounced off the wall. And he said, I was fighting an invisible force. I had it in a headlock and I was smashing it in the head with my flashlight. And I go, what were you fighting? And he goes, the only way I could describe it is that it was a creature, he said. It wasn't a human. He said, it hit me with a force that was so hard that it knocked me out. He woke up on his back like a half hour later. Yeah. Flashlight still in his hand, still working, thankfully. He looked around and he said, let me get the hell out of here. And he left. So we were getting ready to go do that chamber with the whole team. And I never tell my psychic what I'm going to do. Just whatever happens, she calls me and she says, what are you guys up to? She goes, I had a bad bad dream. I had a bad vision. What are you guys up to? So I told her we're going to the ancient stone chambers, you know. And she's, okay, stop. There's one chamber that looks like a dome. Dome chamber. She goes, it's it's a dome-shaped chamber with a little door. She says it's got dark energy attached to it. There's two guys on the team that can't go. And she goes, name, give me their first names, and I'll tell you who they are. So I went through a list of everybody that was going. And she said, okay, these two guys can't go. And I go, why? And she says, because they have subconscious fear. And if they go there, something will attach to them. Uh, so I said, well, can't, can't they just come and hang out in the woods and take pictures from afar? You know, because I know when I tell these guys they can't go, they're going to get pissed, right? Yeah. But I don't want to be the reason why somebody gets something dark attached to them, you know? So she says no, because what's ever attached to that chamber, whatever was in that chamber is not attached to it. It's attached to the land, so it can go anywhere. So if they're in the woods, it's still, they're going to stand out like a beacon in the night, and they're going to go. This thing thing is going to attach to them. So I told these two guys they couldn't go. They weren't happy. But I said, look, dude, you know, be you you can be mad at me all you want, but I'd rather you be mad at me than me feel guilty for you having something dark attached to you for the rest of your life, you know? Right, right. And they understood. And we went there and it, it was a creepy chamber, man. It had it had a dark vibe to it. And as we're 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 checking out, we're taking pictures, we're doing all kinds of stuff with all different kinds of spectrums of light. And I hit it with a UV flashlight. And when I hit it with the UV flashlight, there was an image of like the devil's head, but it was like chiseled in like stone, like almost something you would see in ancient Rome, right? Yeah. Yeah. But if you touch the stone, the stone was smooth. If you shut the UV flashlight off, it wasn't there. If you hit it with a regular flashlight, it, there was no chisel marks. It was nothing there, and it was smooth. You hit it with the UV flashlight, and there it is. Mm. And I guess somebody must have been doing dark shit in that chamber, or something came through that chamber and decided this was going to be its doorway, you know, to right. this realm, and just labeled it for its own. But it was it's a weird chamber because, like I said, every other chamber is built like like almost like a C or a U. With a six foot door. This yeah. thing is built like a dome and it's got like a three foot door. It's just weird, just yeah. crazy. Yeah. And I mean, and it's so my psychic says they were all built by ancient white men in robes, very thousands and thousands of years ago. And they're all on ley lines. Now we've also we've also researched the tit. We find they all line up to like the, the summer solstice and the winter solstice. 
So the sun comes in no matter, you know, the way these things are, the way these things are built. We've, we figured that out as well, but we also figured out, and I said, there's gotta be something with this particular area that that's built in. Cause not only are these chambers there, there's UFOs at this place, this, this, this place, they go in and out of the lake. There's dogman. There's Bigfoot. There's also a giant Chinese, um, what do you call that? The Buddhist temple. Yeah. I mean, it's humongous built on this, on this, along this ley line. And right next to that, maybe a quarter mile away is a giant Catholic monastery. So all of these things are built right along this ley line. And there's no way that's a coincidence. Whoever built these chambers knew about the energy grid. You know what I mean? And so did the Buddhists and so did the the Catholics. You know what I mean? So, yeah, that's crazy. It just, there's so many, so many areas up here, like Dutchess County where I live. Mm -hmm. When it was settled by the Dutch, they called it the devil's playground because there was so much paranormal activity. Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. I've they heard, call- I've heard about that. Yeah. Uh, incredible. Yeah. I mean, I, I've studied a little bit about ley lines and energy. Uh, there, you know, there are certain places in, on the planet that just have that sort of opening, you know, where, where the uh, veil is a little thinner than, than normal. You know, about the Catholic monastery, I would love to go into the Vatican uh, library. (laughs) Yeah, oh my God. Because I I bet you there is just wings uh, of the library, you know. I got a book. It's like this thick. It's like Secrets of the Vatican Library, you know what I mean? I mean, and I'm sure that doesn't even touch the tip of the iceberg, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, before I met my wife, I was actually in seminary to become a priest, right? Oh, wow, yeah. I remember talking to somebody who had been, you know, and studied in Rome and had been in service over there for a while, and he was like, yeah, you hear murmurings and, and like, people talking a little bit. He goes, man, he goes, all I know is uh, I was told that if I went, was actually given access down there, uh, it would blow your mind and, and it would change forever how you feel about Christianity. And oh, I'm like, I'm sure. And I'm like, oh, geez, <laughs> you know, because I, mean, I was a history uh, major and that's where I got my degree in. And so w- whenever, you know, I talk about history and especially the Vatican, man, I'm like, I would love to go on a field trip. <laughs> yeah, if, if I if I could go back in time, my first stop would be the library in Alexandria. Yes, yes. <laughs> that would be my first stop. Yeah. And then. Everything that they didn't burn in Alexandria that they brought to Rome, Rome would be my second stop because then Nero burnt all of that stuff as well. And whatever didn't burn in yeah. Rome is in the Vatican. You know what I mean? Right. So, yeah. 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 So. I've also heard another strong uh, stronghold with that is Ethiopia. That okay. The, that the Ethiopian church actually uh, brought when Rome, you know, when Rome was sacked, uh, or not Rome. But when uh, in Judea, when when the Roman Empire, you know, they sacked them, and uh, of course they moved a lot out. Uh, yeah. Of course, the rumor is, you know, they moved the Ark of the Covenant down in Ethiopia. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. A lot of sacred sort of uh, scriptures. Oh yeah, 
Yeah. And um, I would love that as one of my bucket list places because they're uh, where they say they have the Ark of the Covenant, right? Yeah, absolutely. They, they have these uh, priests that yep. overwatch the area that you're not allowed into. And yep. every single priest dies young and yep. they go they go blind. They go blind, yeah. Yeah. And I've always wondered yeah. and what sort of radiation or what sort yes, of force. It's definitely radiation. Yes, absolutely. I agree. I've seen all the specials they ever did about that little church in Ethiopia yeah. and what they're and what they're guarding in there. And considering it's a tiny little church with a little roaring fence around it, surrounded by a Muslim world. Mm-hmm. No one has ever gone in there. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I you mean, would think the Muslims would have kicked everybody. They would have. They would have sacked that church, but they don't go near it now. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Because you know, at the heart of Islam, uh, they still believe in in, in you know the monotheism. Yeah, Abraham. Yeah, yeah. 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 And uh, so, I mean, they would have, I'm sure they would have reverence and or be a little scared of something like that. Oh, and, I'm sure. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's amazing through history that, that that's not more talked about. Right. It's, it's kind of a by, you know. Yeah. Uh, that's just, yeah, it's like everybody blows it off like it doesn't exist. Yeah. Right. You'll never hear governments talk about it. Yeah. Right. So Al, I'm sure I'm sure the Germans are probably trying to get there. You oh, know? Yeah, I'm sure, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm sure there's an Indiana Jones. Movie uh, yeah, project, I'm sure right? the Germans or the Germans were probably trying to get into that church for sure. Yeah. 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 yeah there's, uh, you know, Eteria and then uh, and then uh, Ethiopia. Remember the Italians right before World War Two? tried to go down in there and it's always made me wonder why there you know why why yeah. why are Ethiopia. they going down, yeah in into yeah. that uh, what's their goal you no. know it, yeah. it makes me wonder maybe someone was looking for something oh absolutely and, uh, i'm sure i'm sure yeah. someone was looking for something absolutely yeah i mean i know we went all over the place tonight we started with bigfoot and we went all over the place but <laughs> we just we just went where where the where it's the the momentum took us but i mean uh i hope i hope it's a good i don't know what time it is i don't know how much time you got left but uh, oh and in, hope... in, in your time it is uh 9 54 okay so it's uh yeah 654 out here yeah i mean there is so much still that we we haven't even talked about dogman yet oh uh, yeah we, we were two hours into it we haven't even yeah, yeah. I, i'm sorry i'm sorry I no no so much yeah this is great man this is this has been an awesome interview uh you have to come back for part three because absolutely I, yeah dog, whenever it, you want me yeah we, we still got to get to dogman we didn't even talk about ufos either no. you know what i mean you don't even yeah right. you don't know the half of it with that too as oh, well yeah. but i mean that's oh, yeah. a whole nother show <laughs> right yeah. we're a whole nother couple shows it's gonna <laughs> yeah. be like a mini series yeah it's, it's funny because every time i i do something with somebody it always becomes like a mini series yeah you know <laughs> right and i try to i try to stay focused i try to stay focused let's just talk about this tonight and then yeah. we'll talk about this next time but yeah. sometimes it's got a life of its own and it, it goes yeah. where it wants to go you know yeah that's what you know what i've learned along the way is each each uh interview has its own life right Mm-hmm. And I, my always thing was get the hell out of the way, right? <laughs> get yeah. the hell out of the way and let it go where it goes because that's where gold happens, right? Absolutely, yes. So yeah, we got to get you on again because uh, 
I've got, I've got, uh, well, I've got one billion one hundred thousand one hundred and twenty nine more questions for you. <laughs> but absolutely, man, yeah. Whenever, whenever you're ready, you let me know. I'll be more than happy to come back it. and do another show. Yeah, I mean, like I said tonight. I wasn't really sure where we were going to go. Then we had to, you know, we did a little, a little talk about before the show started. Let's let's go down to Bigfoot thing because I think the last time we did more paranormal stuff. Yeah, and then it just, you know, it just had its own. It <laughs> took off. It had a life of its own, and it went where it wanted to go. But um, yeah. yeah, no, I mean, it's all interesting stuff, and it's all connected. It's all connected. I had an ascension. That's what I was trying to say ah. uh, two years ago, and. And that's a story all on its own, but um, nice. that's what led me to where I am today, you know, so. Nice. Yeah, that's why I referred to you in the very beginning of the show as paranormal royalty, because uh, you, <laughs> you, you've yeah, had so many that. experiences <laughs> in so many different areas. Uh, it, it, it's awesome, right? And so yeah. uh, I've loved uh, talking to you now a couple of times. I look forward to a third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth as we, <laughs> as we end up on HBO on a miniseries. But, uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Alfred, th thank you so much, man, for coming hey, on. Man, it, Jason, no, the pleasure was all mine. Thank you for inviting me on. Really. Awesome. It's, the pleasure was all mine. It um, really was. Uh, until next time, my friend. Ciao. Folks, wasn't that an awesome interview? I love talking to the Squatch Father. Part three coming soon. All right, before we ride off into the sunset here, I got some news for you. Exciting new news. Hey, we're going to be doing some live streaming soon up on YouTube. That way you guys can comment in real time and we will have a hoot. So also we're going to do some live radio streaming because I believe we should put the Midnight and Midnight Alchemy so we're going to do some live streaming and live broadcasting over our own server. So stay tuned for that coming very soon. Hey, and as of course, you can always voicemail and leave a message for us. Uh, tell us about guest ideas, uh, guests that you want to hear more from, uh, comments on the shows, uh, and no profanity allowed. I'm kidding. No one has left any customers yet, so. It's all good. All right. And you can also email us at midnightalchemyshow at gmail.com. Midnightalchemyshow at gmail.com. Folks, it has been an honor and a privilege to do this episode with you. We will be back very soon with another episode. Folks, last final words. Be kind to each other. And a Reaver Dare Show. <laughs>